0: friends, and welcome to Zippy the Wonder Snail, where we discuss news and culture that matter to you. I'm here with my co-host, Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you today?
1: Hey, Tim, I'm doing well.
0: Wonderful. I am so glad to be zipping along with you as we continue our 25th anniversary at Open for Business. What an amazing thing it is to think back on that. We'll be doing that more this month. But we have just a packed show today and we're going to be zipping through all kinds of great things. I'm excited. Are you?
1: I am very excited. Let's do it.
0: Okay. Well, one thing I'm not excited about, but we have to face, is that baseball season is over for us here in St. Louis. It ended just painfully a few weeks ago, and then it sort of felt like a second shock when Mike Schilt, our manager who has a very nice winning average, found himself without a job last week. What do you make of it, comrade?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what I make of it, of it but I can tell you that it had to be uh, some conflict and a, a conflict of visions. What well, we have been able to gather uh, between Moselock, Schilt, and perhaps the hitting coach, Jeff Albert. So uh, it sounded like also that they weren't going to renew Mike Schilt, even if they had not fired him that day, that particular Thursday um, they said they acted like they could they could go another year but after that they weren't going to and then uh, whatever this was that came up, they're like, let's pull the trigger now. So the speculation has been rampant who the next guy is going to be. And, and Schilt was very diplomatic and he refused to say what it was and he refused to criticize uh, the other members of the of the team there, of the brass. Uh, so that was great. But internal and external options, there's, there's been Yachty rumors as the first player manager. There's been Oliver Marmol, who's the bench coach now. Uh, uh, Matt Holiday, former Cardinal, and uh, finished up with the Rockies and started his career with the Rockies. Very good friends with Nolan Arenado. Um, we'll see what happens. But I think we're going to see, by the middle of November, we'll know who the next manager of the St. Louis Cardinals is. Yes,
0: yeah, it does seem like they're wanting to move quickly, and it wouldn't make much sense to so abruptly fire Schilt and then just leave it vacant. So I do hope we get some answers, at least on who will be managing next year soon. And I have to say, I like two of those options you mentioned especially well, but I'm particularly partial, and I suspect a lot of St. Louis is the idea of a player-manager in Yachty. And what a neat opportunity it would seem like to me. And it makes me wonder if this is part of the conversation on why they, they decided to break with Schilt when they did. What a neat opportunity if Yachty's last year as a player and just a historic player, a future Hall of Fame player, was also his first year as manager. And then he just continues on in that role after that. That would just be utterly spectacular, it seems like to me.
1: Right. And and that would create a lot of buzz. And I think for me, that's what I look at this firing. It's a way to generate buzz because I don't see any other motivation for doing that they made the playoffs all three years that he was the manager um but now they've got the big players they've got nolan they've got goldschmidt and now it seems like it's time to make a big splash that's a little bit out of character for the cardinals but everybody if if yadier molina became the manager that everybody in baseball would be talking about that so could be something like that could be matt Holliday who Recently retired. That's almost like having a player manager uh, because he played so long and so well, and such good friends with uh, with Nolan Arenado. And the other option, which I forgot to mention, is Skip Schumacher. Oh yes, was coaching first base for the Padres. Um, he's well liked in the clubhouse. Still, there are guys that played with him, obviously Wainwright and Yadi, um, and a couple others. Um, and he has the skills to be a manager, but he's still young enough that he can connect with the so could be skip schumacher as well um we'll see we'll see that's all i can say
0: i hope for as abrupt as it was and really in some ways heartbreaking as it was listening to to Schilt's news conference this week and hearing him tear up at the end uh trying to get through it and, and his loyalty to the team and to the players and just the classy way he handled it and I, I know there's some personal well-being motivation in that that it wasn't going to benefit him in the future if he did a tell-all session, but still a, a really, really classy way he, he handled it. it. It sort of felt very pained to think about this man who was handling it so well and had a good record with the Cardinals being let go. I really hope it's for some great reason, like they do see a future for Yachty, but you have to do it this year, or or even a Matt Holliday or a Skip Schumacher, someone who has a history with the club. And someone where it would be really meaningful to St. Louis and it's not where they just pull out one of their buddies from the system and stick it, stick them in there. And it sort of feels like, well, what happened to Schilt then?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think he may Schilt may go to the San Diego Padres. He's been rumored to interview there. Now that they have an opening, they let go of Jace Tingler, the Mizzou player uh, that became their manager. Um, but I, I think that even if he takes a job elsewhere, that he'll be back with the Cardinals in some capacity. Um, cause that's just kind of how it works in St. Louis. Um, even Mike Matheny, who's gone on to manage the Kansas city Royals on some level, he's always welcome back here in St. Louis. And he knows that and Schultz will know that as well. Now, whether he can get over the, whatever the personal conflict conflict was with Mose and or Jeff Albert, um who knows but he, he'll always be welcome here and and the fans will will not remember anything that made them critical of him as the manager i am sure and given that he was so successful that makes even less sense to be uh to hold on to that uh, right. so it'll be warm when he does come back and and i hope he lands well because he showed himself to be a good manager in my opinion so We'll see what happens
0: on that. Yeah, it's kind of funny how you can have a retrospective opinion that that does change so much. Like, there were times over the summer where he felt like he was stuck in the mud just constantly using the same pitchers, and you could predict when games were going to fail, much like, actually, unfortunately, the wild card playoff, where I, I think all of St. Louis watched as Alex Reyes was brought out in the ninth in that tie game with the Dodgers, and it was just, we all knew it was over. And there were those sorts of frustrations with Schilt. But overall, he he really was successful, and we were going in the right direction, which is maybe something that we could say for him over Mike Matheny, that it felt like with Matheny he was good, but we were going downhill. With Schilt, it felt like he was good, and we were moving in the right direction.
1: What I would what i would say in defense of that move um because my brother said something similar is that if somehow you get Alex Reyes through that inning and he doesn't lose on that home run in the wild card game then we are in a much better position than the Dodgers were at that point in the game because they had used so many more pitchers so it was literally you know one out that he needed to get functionally um and he couldn't get it so uh but if he had gotten it you know we're having a very different conversation and now we're seeing that maybe the Cardinals were a lot stronger uh, than people thought and the Dodgers a lot weaker because right now um, LA is struggling. So my, my brothers said that it was a defensible decision um, on pure baseball terms, but on on performance terms, as Reyes had been, uh, maybe not. So we were kind of hoping he would somehow get through it. Um, they don't want to give up on him. He's still so young, and he's going to be in the rotation next year. So I, I was worried. I was concerned. But I also hoped that he could get through it, and he just didn't. So
0: Right. Yeah, I was glad at least that Pujols wasn't the one that took us out of the, the postseason with some kind of big swing when he came up. But I think if there was one thing, and I I wish we knew what the quote-unquote philosophical differences were, and I suspect it's probably something else that I might not even agree with Mosaic on, but if there was one thing that came to mind for me, and I think for an awful lot of us, it felt like Schilt wasn't always the best at adapting when, when players just weren't able to perform, not necessarily for some kind of permanent change, but just recognize this player isn't in this place at this moment. Um, and it felt, that felt frustrating, but I think he was a good manager in so many ways.
1: Yeah. And he, he didn't, he didn't adjust to the roles quickly enough to, to nail down the games and win the games earlier in the season. Yes. Um, but I, but first of all, I think he's a good person. Um, I I think, uh, rumor has it, he's a Christian Mike shield.
0: Uh, That's what I've heard. So,
1: um, I'm happy about that. I'm, I'm happy about those sorts of influences on the Cardinals. Um, I know that there are others who are not, uh, and the, the the brass is going to do what it wants. But uh, I'm glad for those influences. I know he's going to land well. I know he's uh, going to do great in whatever he does from here. Uh, so, yeah, all in all, I was pretty happy with him and kind of shocked, but... Here we are.
0: You do raise an interesting point as we wrap up this segment. But when I, this is something I've been praying for, I, I, and it might sound kind of silly, but I, I think since we do put such a, a spotlight on sports in this culture, I'm always so thankful when we have dedicated Christians in leadership roles in, in our sports teams because it provides a wonderful platform. And I love that we've had that with, with Adam Wainwright and Matt Holliday and Matt Carpenter. Um, and this is where I'd love to see someone like a Matt Holliday take this role as coach, uh, because it would be so nice to continue to have that presence. Certainly, Mike Matheny was fantastic at that. He'd go and share his testimony and so on. Um, but in a culture that there aren't a whole lot of opportunities at sort of the big pop culture level to, to share your Christian faith, it, at, athleticism seems to make people a little bit more willing to hear it. And so I'm praying and I, I hope that that's the case that, The Cardinals can continue to have uh, solid Christian leadership in the highest levels of of the the clubhouse. That would be a wonderful thing. I agree. Well, uh, we do need to move on, and we need to talk about our first sponsor, which today is Open for Business, our parent site that hosts Zippy the Wondersnail. And right now, Open for Business is celebrating its 20th anniversary. We have been on the web sharing news and culture, technology, things that matter to you for 20 years now. If you don't presently read Open for Business, please do check us out, ofb.biz, that's www.ofb.biz. We have columns weekly from myself, from Jason, and from Dennis E. Powell, and we would love to have you there interacting with us in the comments, engaging in the sort of conversation we have here on Zippy, where we talk about the things that matter to you in a way that maybe is a little different than what we often see being shouted in so much of our culture. So please check us out, Open for Business. Well, we're going from arguably the fluffy side of Zippy the Wonder Snail talking about baseball, which, you know, we take very seriously here at Zippy, but also we realize is a game to something that very much isn't, which is the sanctity of life. And Jason, you wrote a a follow-up piece on abortion recently on Open for Business, and maybe you could just walk our readers through it a little bit and we can dig into that more. This is such a big topic right now. Once again, it's always a big topic, but we're certainly talking about it a lot in our culture, and I think you have some helpful insights to direct that conversation.
1: Um, The way I approached it in this particular piece was I'm approaching it as an ongoing discussion between people who are discussing the issue of abortion. So I'm bringing up arguments that are being made uh, against the pro-life position. And one of the arguments that gets made, and it belongs in scare quotes because it's not really an argument, is that, well, if you're not a woman, you don't get to make these decisions. And I wanted to confront that because it it says that... A, that a man has no access to reason to be able to figure out uh, that this is a person and that they are deserving of protection. Um, and it's a bit of sophistry. So um, I wanted to confront that bit of sophistry and then confront another argument that gets made is, well, if um, if we pass this abortion law, then all these bad effects are going to happen in the hard cases. And I pointed out in the piece that most of the abortions that take place in the United States are completely elective. 90% of all abortions have no grave medical cause as being the justifying reason for it taking place. Um, and so if we're going to talk about the hardships that are inflicted by uh, a purported law that would ban abortion, then we should be talking proportionally about those numbers. And they don't uh, they don't match up at all. of abortions in the U.S. are elective, 10% or maybe even less are these hard cases. And I think most pro-life people in this country, if they could get a law where we only had hard cases or we only had abortions that took place um, after rape or incest, even though that might be philosophically unacceptable um, in the abstract, I would take that right now. And I think a lot of people would, too. So, um, and you pointed out before the show started uh, is is taking an extreme situation or an unfortunate situation and making it programmatic for the entire uh, issue, so that the bulk of the issue gets completely ignored. So that pro-choice position is um, because these hard cases exist, because negative impacts may happen to. A small number of individuals, then let's not uh, regulate this at all. And let's not think about the humanity of the uh, person in the womb there. So I wanted to confront that and challenge it and do it from my unique perspective that is nonpartisan. um, But to confront the, the arguments head on. The other thing that happens in politics, Tim, is that we just go to our separate camp and there are euphemisms created with different issues and abortion is no exception. Um, And we use our our euphemisms or we use our language within our in-group and we're not even talking to the other group. So um, hopefully we can get to a place where we're talking about honestly what's going on um, and not using euphemisms and looking at hard data, uh, how many, how much, under what circumstances, and under what circumstances uh, are we going to allow that, and then coming to some meaningful uh, compromise, or to some meaningful better position than where we are now. So. That's where that piece was going. Check it out on ofb.biz.
0: This was a, I think a, a part of what I like that we get to do here on Zippy and on Open for Business where we try to maybe get into a little more nuance. And that's been something certainly I appreciate in this piece and has frustrated me so much in the general public discourse on this issue because it seems like there are so many cases with abortion that almost everyone would agree are bad, unless they're just completely partisan. And the statistics bear that out. If you talk to most Americans, while a majority of Americans do seem to say that they're at least marginally pro-choice, the vast majority of Americans don't like purely elective abortion. The vast majority of Americans don't like late-term abortion. These are things that are pretty easy to find a consensus on if we can get past the partisanship. And... If we could at least say, these are areas that we all agree are bad, and and if those of us who are pro-life can say, yeah, we'd like to reach for the stars and get abortion completely eliminated, it'd be nice if it didn't exist. If we're talking about the murder of a human being, that's really painful. And yet, if we can reduce the amount of murders of human beings, if we can save some of those innocent lives, that's a good start. That would be so encouraging. And, And sometimes I get frustrated at my own side because some of these laws that get passed go after not just the the common sense. Everybody can agree this is, is an area that might make some sense to regulate cases of abortion, but they'll go after the, f- the full spectrum, even when they know it's going to get tossed out in court in some uh, quixotic hope that the court is going to side on their side. And maybe someday it will. But in the meantime, a whole lot of abortions, a whole lot of murders could be stopped by addressing the probably at least 60, 70, 80% of cases that even many pro-choice Americans would agree are bad, and maybe step there to the 90% of cases that aren't quote-unquote hard cases. And then once we do that, I think we'd have a lot better shot at coming to the table and talking about how do we handle those 10%. Um, because a lot of them do put us in As you said before the show, no-win situations where no matter what you do, no matter what you regulate, something bad happens. But those are a small part of it. And when the pro-life side, my own side, goes and just attacks those cases... It feels like it's an open invitation then to the pro-choice side that would love to do nothing more than only talk about those cases because those are the ones that the majority are going to side against the pro-life cause on. And then we never help all the innocent children that are falling under that 80-90% or maybe even 95-96% that most people would say we really should have some regulation here on. I mean, you and I talked last time we were on this subject. Europe has stricter controls on abortion than we do in the United States. So couldn't we at least start by getting as strict as Europe? Europe is not a theocracy by any stretch of the imagination. Couldn't we at least approach where Europe is as a starting point?
1: Right. I agree. And, and again, you know, that's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a joke that gets past Toronto. You want to be like Europe. But in this case, we do because they seem to have found a more moderate position than our politics are allowing us to have. So. Uh, in that way, let's be like Europe. Let's regulate abortions that don't make sense. Let's regulate it up to 12 weeks or 15 weeks. Um, and we talked about that last time because there are cases before the court about that, uh, especially the one in Mississippi. So yes, let's go after um, the vast, vast majority of abortion. And then we can talk about uh, what else we have- might be able to compromise on, uh, but let's get the proportions right was my point in the piece there. So
0: Yeah. Uh, before we move on, I, I did want to talk about one other aspect you bring up in the piece. You, you talk about the issue that people really like to avoid, and that's disability and abortion. Um, one of the unspoken, ugly parts of the whole abortion complex is, for example, how many children with Down syndrome are aborted every year. And I I think it's important that you brought that up. Maybe you'd like to say a little more on that.
1: Yeah, I think, um, again, as a person with a disability myself, if we we judge people worthy to live, by their capacity to do things for other people, um, then we're missing the point of the inherent dignity of, of the human being. And we need to really look at things like Down syndrome and other conditions and diseases, because I defy anyone to tell me or to tell others living with disabilities that our lives are not worth living. So the fact that some part of the genetic testing regime for unborn children ends up at the service of this industry of death Is regrettable yes because I continue to live with my disability millions of people live with Down syndrome and they live fruitful amazing outstanding joyous worthy lives and then you know part of the argument is oh well we shouldn't want a child to suffer well you know it's not for us to decide uh, if that should happen and quality of life is quite a slippery little slope to get hung up on and say oh, these, this is the quality of life that's worthy of protection. This is the quality of life that's not worthy of protection. So we need to rethink that because a person with a disability will challenge our, our foolish assumptions on this matter at every turn if we give them a chance. And so often we don't even give them a chance.
0: It does seem sort of telling that a political advocacy movement like the pro-choice movement that often it uses the motto, my body, my choice, would at the same time decide that it gets to choose what happens to another person and their body based on whether they deem that their life is going to have a quality to it or not. And you're right, it's it's awfully slippery. And there's a whole question on whether we ought even as ourselves to be determining whether we have enough quality of life, right? Then you get into the euthanasia discussion. But it certainly should be even more disturbing when we say some third party is going to determine whether we have enough of a quality of life or not. And it's funny how somehow we are able to couch that and ignore it. But I think that goes back to your your thesis for that piece, that these are the things that we should be talking about rather than those 10% or less... Really hard cases that we may not be able to easily solve with public policy. The the big cases are: should we be, for example, looking at someone and trying to determine before they're even born if their life is worthy or not? That seems like a conversation that should take precedence rather than spending all our time on those hard cases.
1: I agree. Theology, disability, and the body of Christ uh, by Brian Brock, um, and it's a book I've been reading, and he has a whole chapter about uh, the genetic testing regime and how, because in the absence of philosophical reflection, a lot of that genetic testing tends toward abortion and and ends in abortion, and he challenges that. And uh, that chapter by itself is worth the price of admission, as they say, so we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Mr. Brock has a son who is both uh, diagnosed with Down syndrome and is autistic. So, um, and no one after meeting Adam, his son, is going to say that his life isn't worth protecting, even though it's been very challenging. So, that was a very, uh, a very obvious case uh, where it would be hard to look Adam in the eyes and say, you don't deserve to live. Um, and I was moved by various parts of the book myself as a person with a disability. Uh, so, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes and check it out. I-
0: an awful lot of attempts, certainly long before television and movies and such. People were creating great works of art depicting scenes from the Bible. People were writing fiction trying to construct the parts that the Bible doesn't go into, all these sorts of things. But in the visual media that we have access to over the last century or so, there have been these attempts to take this story that we find and bring it to life before our eyes and and be able to act as if we are there. And one of the most interesting and most current attempts at that is a mini series known as The Chosen Jason you're watching it right now maybe you could share a bit about it
1: yeah it it begins um it jesus collecting his disciples and uh one by one and they are chosen, um, and it goes into depth with each each one that you meet. Uh, there are no ancillary characters in this story. Uh, Jesus is played by an actor named Jonathan Rumi, um, and, there, and there's a great cast. A veteran actor named Eric Avari gets to play uh, Nicodemus, um, and on some level, the producers of the show are able to Make almost everybody that you meet in the show sympathetic or at least understandable from their position, but it gives us a chance to see what it might have been like to meet the Apostles, to walk with Jesus, to be uh, his enemy, to be the curious bystanders, uh, to meet his mother, to meet uh, others along the way. Um, and this show is crowdfunded, so they've been getting donations to produce the show and they want to-i think they want to say-they said they want to do seven seasons and they're going to go all the way through-i think the four gospels if they can um and-and i love-what i love about the chosen that i've noted so far is that there is a distinct lack of cheese there's no cheese with this show it's just this is how it might have gone down. This is how um, it may have happened with these real people. And I think it helps us um, as Christians when our Bibles can come alive because they were real. They were real people. They lived and walked and and worshipped and experienced life. Um, they were not just two-dimensional characters uh, that we meet on the pages of our Bible. Uh, and this goes a long way to help us to see that and to maybe um, see our faith in a new way. So I really appreciate it. Um, And you should check it out, Tim. I know you haven't had a chance to really get too deep into it. I know you've seen some clips and things, uh, but I've watched all the way through the two seasons that are out so far.
0: Yeah, it's been something that I've been feeling like I should watch. I have seen some clips the the church I've been at while I'm in the process of, of planting Little Hill's, has been showing some clips. Uh, they showed some clips this spring right when the second season dropped. And it does look incredibly well done in some sense. Just seeing the clips, it it makes me think back to The Passion of the Christ. Obviously a very different film in some sense in that it was filmed with... um the dialogue in Latin, for example. But but in the artistic quality, it looks very well done. And like you said, one thing that's been infamously present in so much of Christian film has been, been cheese and poor production quality. And it seems so sad that the same entity, the church, that for a millennia or so was the one that set the standard for culture and was right at the heart of the movement of art and music and so on. So often today puts out stuff that is really, really bad. And so I, I love that they seem to not be doing that. I I, I have struggled. Now, one thing, I, I'm just bad at watching new television series. That's always been something I've been bad at. But I do have a couple of things I struggle with, and maybe we can talk about that. One thing, just Theologically, I, I still wrestle with putting Jesus on screen. That's admittedly one of my, my theological things. And, and I, I kind of wrestle with it where I'm not a hardliner, where I say, absolutely not, you shouldn't be on screen. I actually love The Passion of the Christ, for example. But, but I do struggle a little there. And sort of connected to that, I, I tend to struggle a bit with series that dramatize the life of Christ. I personally have written drama on different biblical characters. I wrote a play a while back, for example, uh, framed as a tragedy on the life of King Saul and had a blast doing it. I think those sorts of things are good to, to to bring the characters to life and to flesh out their thought processes beyond what we see on the pages of Scripture, as long as we remember that it isn't on the pages of Scripture. But I think that's one place where I'm I'm kind of torn, and I I don't know the right answer to this, but for example, when a, a a dramatic performance like this inserts words into Jesus's mouth, I, I just kind of worry. It's amazing how people can watch something like that and then they think the person being dramatized said it. And, and that's one thing. If it's King Saul, you know, a, a king that isn't particularly even good. He's not by any means the most wicked king in the Bible, but not a good king. And so if Saul says something in my play and and it's attributed to him, and somehow someone get stuck in their head that that's what Saul said in the Bible. It, it isn't really that big a deal in some sense. I'm not saying it's good, but it's not that big a deal. But I do wonder what happens when we insert words into Jesus's mouth, even ones that are very reverent, that someone might then develop and they think, well, Jesus said this, and so I'm going to build that into my position on this or that issue or whatever. It seems like it's at least a challenge. Just a, a silly pop culture example I saw someone referring to the other day Is the old, um, Saturday night live satire of Sarah Palin when she was running for vice president. And, and they had that fantastic line that was really funny at the time that the, the fake Sarah Palin said, I can see Russia from my, from my front porch. Yeah. And if you survey people today, probably. I think actually a majority of Americans think that she actually really did say that, and she didn't. Right. And and so I guess I wrestle a little bit. How do we dramatize the life of Christ and build it out in a way that you can put on screen, which in so many ways is a, a laudable effort, but help people not to think that every word that's said is from the Bible. <laughs>
1: And what I actually and I'll say this in defense of the show, at least sort of tangentially to your point, is you can actually see. They dramatize the composition of the gospel in the show. So when you're talking and walking with Jesus, you may hear things that, that don't match exactly with the words of Scripture. But then you have the other characters, notably Matthew and then John, uh, actually beginning to write their gospels. And you can see that. So we'll see what they do. Uh, with that as as it goes along and those works become complete as it were Um, but and i would just encourage people again we should go back to scripture go back to scripture go back to scripture because that's the authoritative word of what jesus actually said this just helps us to to understand them as people. This doesn't replace our Bible reading, doesn't replace the revealed Word of God, and the revelation in total in Jesus and through the apostles. So uh, I'm with you there. Maybe we can debate like Second Ephesus, the Council, the Second Council of Ephesus later on about <laughs> the depiction of Jesus, but... Uh, Go back to Scripture, everybody. Don't just leave your Bible on a shelf. It's there to be read. It's there to be taken in all the time. Uh, no show, no matter how good it is, is ever going to replace the Bible for me. And I don't think it should for you either. So that'll be all I have to say about that.
0: I, I really have to say, as much as I, I come ahead with hesitancy, I can't agree more with what you're saying. Because if people take it with that mindset and they say, okay, I'm going to sit down and watch that, and it makes them want to go and actually read the Gospels more or read the rest of Scripture more, then what a wonderful thing that is. And if we can keep in mind, this is essentially a commentary, as it were. It's something to help us think how the parts that aren't fully fleshed out might have been but we can hold on to it a little bit more loosely than the Bible itself, and and still be digging into God's word. Then, then it it very well could flip my opinion on that, because that that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Agreed. Jason, you know what else is a wonderful thing? What's that, Tim? FaithTree.com Grow. We've been talking about digging into God's Word, and that is a place where you can dig into God's Word even this very day and hear wonderful voices. Speaking of commentary, providing commentary on Scripture, preaching on Scripture, writing articles on Scripture. You can even get a convenient link to Zippy the Wondersnail right there at faithtree.com grow. It's so helpful as we're digging into scripture, and I think this can help us in those places where we do inject things that the Bible hasn't said and think they're there, like, you know, oftentimes people think things that Benjamin Franklin said are really in scripture. One thing that can help us to do that is just spend more time in God's Word and around people helping to explain God's Word for us. And faithtree.com grow is a great place to do that.
1: You're really good at doing commercials, Tim.
0: Well, I think I should thank you for that. And in any case, people should go to FaithTree.com Grow and the offer isn't good just for the next twenty minutes. It's good every single day. Go and check it out. And incidentally, right now when you go to FaithTree.com Grow, you get to No, I'm I'm kidding. It, when you go to FaithTree.com Grow right now, you can also check out the the opportunity to relive Faith Toberfest that we had last week. A wonderful journey through faith and music and God's faithfulness right at the center of it that I think will really make your day or your evening if you haven't already seen it. So once again, grow.faithtree.com, faithtree.com grow is here for you, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, speaking of digging into God's Word, we always try to do that, Jason. And as we end the show today, we're actually turning to the end of the Bible. We're turning to Revelation chapter 22. What do you think of when you think of Revelation 22?
1: Well, I think of the end, uh, because it is the very end of the Bible, and it is uh, wrapping up the story. And it is a story, even though it's true. And we can get misled by that word story, but God has been telling a story from the beginning to the end, and he wants to invite us into it. And when you get to Revelation 22, everything that we hope for and has been promised to us comes to its fruition there. So, uh, you know, I remember being taught uh, a simple way to break up the Bible into four parts, and it was creation, fall, redemption and consummation. And so when we get to Revelation 22, that means everything's going to be consummated. Everything's going to come to its end and be wrapped up and God is going to have the victory. And so, uh what a joy it is to know that God has made a promise and he will keep it and he will be victorious and uh, things that you hear in Revelation, uh behold I'm making all things new. Uh I am the bright morning star, the Lord Jesus says. Uh but He's going to wrap up our story and his story into one, and we can have joy and peace in Christ because he returns and he takes us to the new Jerusalem with him.
0: Amen. Yes. Uh, One reason we're talking about Revelation 22 today is that a Bible study I've been leading for the last nine years is actually going to be discussing Revelation 22 tonight. And yes, you heard that right. Last nine years, we've been working towards this. We started a study through the Chronological Bible, which there are a number of them available. I'll put some in the show notes if anyone's interested. But they're really neat study Bibles that rearrange the order of the books so that, for example, when you're reading the history of the kings, you go back and forth between the history and the prophets and what they're saying about a given king or a given situation in Israel. Likewise, in the New Testament, for example, in Acts, you also read some of the epistles that are happening as Acts is happening. So helpful in trying to connect and and recognize what Jason was saying, which is, that, yes, we might call this a story, but we don't call it a story because it's fictional. We call it a story that's a true story. It's something that actually happened. And when you connect the historical pieces together, it can help us to see that. Anyway, we've been going through this for nine years, and we just got to Revelation 22. So it feels sort of like we've been anticipating the return of Christ, just like in life, we're anticipating the return of Christ. We're looking forward to it. And so it's really kind of a special moment to arrive here at Revelation 22. and after seeing the whole buildup of scripture over those nine years with the, this wonderful group of people I've been studying with, to come to hear and to see those words that we come to at the very end, Revelation twenty two twenty, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. John says in response, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. When, it, when we go through the Bible, whether we're just going straight through in the traditional order or you're using a chronological Bible, that's the last thing you read. And likewise, that's the final chapter in the story of of history. Not just history in the Bible, but in history. What a wonderful thing. And I, I think what's been really striking me today, I know some some friends who are going through some really awful things right now. And we know how challenging life can be in so many ways. But that's the end. The end is that we come before our Lord and Savior. And we don't come before Him Purely in the fearsome way that we see earlier in Revelation. But we come to him and we see in him and in the way he interacts with us, someone who loves us, someone who died for us. And finally, we see that consummation you were talking about, the fulfillment of history where we enjoy his presence. And to me, whatever we're facing in life right now in this moment, that's the answer. It doesn't take away the momentary pain or the challenges. It doesn't mean that we don't have to deal with the current situations. It's not trying to escape them. But it's saying, what are we working towards? Where are we headed? It's this. It's that this Bible that tells real history is also telling the history of the future and not in the sense of, well, let's predict the exact time the end of the world comes, that kind of thing. That That's getting lost in the weeds, I think, so often. Not to mention Jesus says we can't come up with the date. Mm. But what is it doing? It, it's reminding us that there's a beautiful end of this story. Surely I am coming soon. Someday Jesus is going to return. And that's going to be a truly beautiful day. And I'm just looking forward to Uh, sitting down with this group that's been studying through the Bible for nine years now and reflecting on that tonight. I hope every one of our listeners has the experience of reading straight through the Bible and coming to that and just soaking in that for a moment. Surely I'm coming soon.
1: And I think my final word on that would just be, let's go go back in a sense and look at the cross and realize that, yes, Jesus died for everyone, but he died for you and me. Amen. And to to know that he died for me personally, that he knows me by name uh that he didn't wait for me somehow to clean myself up but he went to that cross knowing exactly who i've been in my worst moment and he wants to bring me all the way from there to that joy and peace of the kingdom in revelation that we're talking about in revelation 22 uh for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame um and 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 that was for me and that was for you um and I never get sick of talking about that, and I never get sick of thinking about that i can I can look at I can look at the cross and I can look at the accounts of the crucifixion, and I can look at uh the words of Jesus on the page as he says uh, of one man i he looked at him and he loved him, or he looked at Peter when he when Peter betrayed him but jesus looked right at him and what love and compassion even though peter was feeling shame in that moment but to know that jesus is looking right at you or when jesus says uh peter do you love me and he, and he asked him three times and how painful that must have been for peter to be reminded of his threefold denial but also he loves me he's restoring me right here and he says Satan has asked you to as asked to sift you like wheat, and after you have turned back, strengthen your brethren, and that's us too. So we're failures; we need forgiveness. But when we when we turn back, we strengthen each other, and that's kind of what we're trying to do here on Zippy, as well as remind each other of the love of Christ. His love to die on the cross for us, and also to empower us to go forward, uh, to live new life um, in the joy of his salvation.
0: Absolutely. May we never tire of talking about this. It's important reflection, and we may come to the same point again and again, and yet it's a point that I think each of our souls needs to hear again and again and again. In fact, guess what, Jason? Where do you think my Bible study group's going next week after we finish Revelation 22? Uh,
1: Genesis 1.
0: Going right back to Genesis 1, because, you know, the thing is, it's not like you get a certificate when you've read through the Bible and you say, Okay, I know it all now. We need to go back and keep hearing God's Word ministering to us over and over again. And so we're going to go right back, and who knows, maybe in another nine years we'll be back in Revelation 22 again.
1: Right, well, and you know, I've watched Field of Dreams 65 times. I don't think I've read the Bible 65 times, so if I can watch the same movie over and over again, uh, this movie's better. Amen. So,
0: well... uh, That movie never ends when you think about it because it's talking about all eternity with God's presence. But Zippy the Wonder Snail does end and we are at the end right now. But we are so glad you joined us once again. If you haven't already, please go to your favorite podcasting source, whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's Amazon Podcasts, whether it's Spotify, wherever you get your finer podcasts. We're there. Subscribe so you get every episode of Zippy right away. And hey, would you do us a favor? If you know a friend who would be encouraged by what we've been talking about today, share this podcast. Share it directly with them. Post it on your Facebook. Play it when some other friends come over and have a discussion about some of the topics we've discussed. We would love it if you would help us to go ahead and zip into the ears of more people talking about news and culture and things that matter to you as two Christian guys. Thank you for joining us tonight. And Jason... Of course, it's always such a joy to get to go on this adventure with you. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you too, Tim.
0: Well, we will see you next time, and I can't wait for that to come.